0: And so as we now come to Your Word, Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word to nourish our souls. We pray that You would use Your Word to strengthen our walk. We pray that You would use Your Word to conform us more to the image of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that Your Word would do Your work in us. So we pray for conviction. We pray for understanding. And we pray for determination to follow Christ, to live our lives for Him and for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 51. And this is a psalm which... um, if I can just be completely honest with you guys, for just a moment, I have just dreaded preaching this psalm. I even considered skipping this psalm. And I think most of you realize that that is just completely unlike me. I don't like to skip anything. I think that most of you know that I prefer to go, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that I don't have the opportunity to skip over anything that I would rather not preach. But today we've come, uh, kind of reluctantly, I have to admit, to Psalm 51. It's the psalm that David wrote when the prophet Nathan came to him and uncovered his sin. What was that sin? Well, first of all, it was sexual sin. He saw Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, uh, the, the wife of another man named Uriah. But he lusted for her. He asked about her, and one of his counselors told him, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? We continue reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now upon this discovery, did David know that he had transgressed God's law? He absolutely did. He knew that what he had done was completely wrong, that he had fallen into sexual sin and Now he he learned afterward in the wake of it that, well, sexual sin has consequences. His life didn't get easier. It became more difficult because now there was a child in Bathsheba's womb, and she was married to another man who wasn't in Jerusalem at the time. So when it turned out that she was pregnant, people were going to know. And so David, he knew that he had done wrong, but if her husband found out that she was pregnant, his cover would be completely blown. And, And so he proceeded to arrange to have her husband, Uriah, positioned on the front lines of the fiercest battle, and then for all the troops to withdraw away from Uriah, so that his death was certain on the battlefield there was no way for him to survive and David knew it this was his way of dealing with his sin this is dark this is evil and perhaps just as dark and just as evil just as bad as the sin itself of of committing adultery and murder just as bad as that for one year David did nothing about his sin. There's there's no sign of of remorse. There's no sign of trying to deal with it. He, He just kind of swept it under the rug. He tried to hide it for a year. Friends, the reason I am so apprehensive, so hesitant to preach this psalm is because I have counseled so many people over the years who were either trapped in sexual sin at the time... Or they were dealing with the consequences of sexual sin. And the last thing that I would ever want to do from this position, from from the the pulpit, would be to make somebody think that I'm preaching a sermon with only one or two people in mind. Uh, Please know ahead of time, I'm I'm not going to do that. I don't just have a few of you in mind or whatever. I have counseled and I have wept with so many over the years, who have struggled with the sins of adultery and fornication. This is just something that's a very delicate subject. A very relevant subject. And let me prove that. A recent study revealed that more than 70% of youth pastors... We're going to get to the other pastors in a minute. 70% of youth pastors reported that they've had at least one teen or preteen come to them in the previous 12 months regarding their habit of going to illicit websites. The same study reported that 68%, more than two-thirds... of church-going men and over 50% of pastors visit explicit websites on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults who are aged 18 to 24, 76% actively search for these illicit websites and images. What are they doing every time they do that? What are pastors doing? What are church-going men doing every time they go to these illicit websites? They are committing adultery. So, this is really a relevant topic for the church in our day and age. So this is absolutely not the time for anybody to be saying, oh dear, we, we can't talk about that kind of stuff in church because if the Bible talks about it if the scriptures speak of it you'd better believe that we not only can be talking about it but that we should be talking about it and when you look at the statistics what becomes evident is that we must be talking about it and if you think by the way parents if you think that your kids are too young to have that conversation about this kind of stuff, if they are older than seven, you might simply just be naive if you think they're too young to be talking about it. David was guilty of both adultery and murder. Now listen very closely to me. If you visit these inappropriate, explicit websites, you might be thinking, well, at least I'm not a murderer. But you need to know that the rate of death by suicide or death by drug overdose in that industry is just absolutely off the charts. And so every single time you go to those websites, every single time you put your eyes on those images, you are feeding and you are fueling that industry. And so you are absolutely guilty of contributing to the suicide rate or the death by drug overdose rate, never mind the the fact that there is so much human trafficking in that industry. And so with that said, let me tell you this. If you visit those explicit websites, you are a murderer. You are not only an adulterer, but you are a murderer in God's eyes. Now under God's law, these sins could not be ceremonially cleansed from a person. What was the penalty for adultery? Leviticus 20.10 instructs as follows, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. What about murder? That's an easy one. Numbers 35.30 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. A clarification is then added in verse 31 where it says, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In other words, even if you are the richest man in the world, there was no way out for you if you murdered somebody. The penalty for you was death. Both of these sins required that the guilty party be put to death. But I want to broaden the scope here just a little bit, because this psalm isn't just for people who are guilty of the sins of adultery and or murder. If you're guilty of those sins, yes, absolutely, this psalm is for you. But it's also a psalm for anyone who has a woefully casual, low view of sin and of God's calling for His people. To be holy, as He is holy. Or, or maybe you have a, a, a proper, a healthy view of sin and God's calling for holy living, but, but you think that you're above it. You're, you're above this. You think that you could never fall into such egregious sin If that's what you think, this psalm is for you as well. Because if the only person in all of human history who was described as being a man after God's own heart can stumble in this way, then guess what? I'm not described that way. You're not described that way. We can all fall the same way that David can. If he can stumble, how much more vulnerable are you? Or maybe you are just tired and weary from the daily war with sin, and it's kind of made you numb to the point where you no longer get on your knees to confess when you've sinned. This psalm is for you as well, if that's you. See, the question is not whether or not Christians sin. Of course we do. We all do. The question is whether we are comfortable with our sin, whether we have made peace with our sin, or... Do we hate it? Do we forsake it? Do we go to war actively? Not passively. You don't go to war passively. Do we actively go to war with it? And Psalm 51 brings us to the point where, point where we not only see the painful reality of sin and the constant, continual struggle that we have against sin, but we also see the wonder of and the glory of divine grace. The Holy Spirit gives us a wonderful, wonderful model of repentance. True repentance from David's pen in this psalm. And so every single one of us needs this because the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. Why? Because our lives are constantly marred by sin. So we must constantly be repenting. Striving for holiness constantly. So, David's sins required his own death, and he knew it. He knew that there were no sacrifices that he could possibly bring before the Lord to atone for his sin. That even if he were to bring all of the sheep and all of the cattle in all of Israel, in, in all the world, it would be terribly, woefully inadequate if David would have vowed to spend the rest of his life doubling his efforts to, to live a godly life, maybe to live in celibacy, you know, pursue God twice as much as he did before, it still wouldn't be enough. There was literally nothing that David had in his hand to bring to the Lord. Because all of our righteous deeds are just filthy rags. So this psalm reminds us that there is only one way out of the guilt of sin and back to God. And that is through the perfect sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God. And that's the point of this psalm. So the psalm begins with David's cry for God's grace. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. By the way, there are more details in that little inscription there than there are before any other psalm. I think David wants us to make sure, make sure that we know that it was him and not somebody else. So we've got to give him credit for that. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Like anybody else who is guilty of sin, and that would be all of us by the way, David must simply come to God. And he does. He he, he finally takes that first step. And let's just stop with that for a second because the fact that he even came to God is worth taking note of. Now we know that he didn't immediately do this. He put it off as long as he could he he tried to to just press on and to, to sweep it under the rug, so to speak, for a year. But when his sin was uncovered, David did the right thing by immediately going to God. Many Christians will not immediately come to God when they sin and i 'm sure that there are Uh, a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, Maybe they just have a low view of sin and they think, hey, you know, God's going to cover my sin with His grace, so I don't even need to worry about it. I don't even need to think twice about it. I can just sin freely. That's called antinomianism. If you're an antinomian, you're not a Christian. Let me just put it that way. That's just using God's grace as a license to sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it clear, that is not an option for the Christian. Or maybe, and I think this probably happens more times than people realize, maybe people don't come to God in their sin because they feel so ashamed. There is a real devil who is waging a real war against you if you're a Christian. You, you know that, right? You you live your life in light of that truth, right? You know that. If, if you're a Christian, listen, the devil knows that he can't Cause you to lose your salvation. He knows that there is no sin that is so great that God would never restore you or cleanse you because of it. But the devil doesn't want you to know that. And if you know that, he doesn't want you to believe that. And so since he can't steal your salvation, since he can't cause you to actually fall from salvation, what he does is he seeks instead to steal your joy in Christ to steal your assurance of salvation and to make you feel like God could never love a sinner like you and he could never forgive you now if you're tempted if you're ever tempted to feel that way you'd better be prepared to remember that the devil's a liar The devil is a liar. He will start out by encouraging you to sin. He'll be whispering in your ear, hey, it's okay, nobody will know. You can get away with it. Besides, it's not that big of a deal. Look at so-and-so. Look at what he does. You're not doing anything as bad as him. And then he follows that up right after you've justified it and done it by saying, well, I meant nobody but God will know. Uh, Your sin has separated you from God now and He would never want someone like you for a child. Satan loves to tempt Christians to backslide. And a Christian who hides their sin for a year, that's called backsliding. Satan loves that. Once they've backslidden, the devil tries to convince them that they will never be able to get back up again. That the window has closed, so to speak. Because you have a real enemy of your soul who does things like this, you must know That you can come to God in your sin and in your shame. No matter how great your sin and how great your shame may be, the door is always open. You can go to God. He does want you to draw near to Him. He does want you to come to Him. Your sin probably isn't greater than David's was, and David starts off by coming to God. On what basis though? On what basis does he come to God? It's not on the basis of his own works, his good works. All that he's done for God, he he knows that every victory he's had on the battlefield, it was because God gave him the victory. Whatever he's done for God was done by God working through David. So he can't come on the basis of anything remotely good that he's done. He can't come on the basis of God's justice. God's justice is what would cause us to flee from God. So on what basis does he come to God? He comes, he says in verse 1, on the basis of God's loving kindness. His hesed. That's the word there. We've seen this word so many times throughout the Psalms. His unfailing covenantal love for His people. That's what that word loving kindness or hesed means. So he comes on the basis of God's loving kindness and on the basis of the greatness of God's compassion. Do you know that God's compassion is great? Because the same is true for you, friends, regardless of the details of your sin. The only basis that you can come to Him by is His loving kindness and the greatness of His compassion. The most important thing that you can know about God is that He's holy. And because He's holy, He cares, and He cares deeply about the holiness of His people. He cares about whether or not we walk according to His precepts. And this is why it's such a dangerous and such a satanic lie that God's grace is just a license to sin. Because God does not want us to sin. Why would He give us grace to enable us to sin? It doesn't make any sense. That is a satanic lie. And He instructs us to be holy just as He is holy. He warns us that without holiness, one will not even see the Lord. Now, while it's vitally important for you to realize that God is holy, it's also crucial that you know that God is merciful. One of my favorite quotes comes from Charles Spurgeon, who once said, God loves to forgive more than you love to sin. End quote. You must know not only that he is holy, But you also must know that He is merciful, that He is gracious. Because if He's not, if He's holy, but He's not merciful and gracious, we have no hope. But our willingness, indeed our, our eagerness to come to God and to confess our sins needs to be motivated by an awareness both of God's holiness, the fact that He cares about our holiness, and of God's mercy and grace and a love both for God and for His ways. See, this is where we see the difference between a slave and a son. The slave says, uh, "You know, I'm, I'm afraid of, of what might happen because of my sin. That's not true repentance. That's repentance that leads to death. Whereas the son says, I fear that I have displeased my heavenly Father. That's a repentance that leads to life. Do you fear the Father's displeasure toward you? Now, stop for a second because I know that every single one of you probably knows the right answer to that question up here. You know this answer on, on an intellectual level, but I want to go beyond just what's intellectual, what's in our, in our minds. I want to go to your heart, I want to go to your emotions. Do you fear emotionally the Father's displeasure? Think about the person that you love the most. Maybe it's your, your spouse. Maybe it's you know wh- whoever. Maybe it's your one of your parents. But think about the person that you love the most and how you would absolutely hate to anger or offend or displease that person should you not feel the same way toward God, only infinitely more so. And this is how David comes to God. He's... Grieved and he's distraught that he has acted in a way that would displease God. And he uses three words to describe his sin in verses one and two. First, he refers to them as transgressions. A transgression, it just simply means to cross a line or to cross a boundary. God's word gives us boundaries, right? boundaries within which we are all to live. Those boundaries aren't there to limit you though as much as they are there to protect you from what lies outside of those boundaries. And crossing those boundaries, make no mistake about it, is an act of war against God. It is an act of cosmic treason against the God who not only created you, but who owns you. The second word he uses of his sin in verse 2, is iniquity. Iniquity just refers to our perversity, our our depravity, our uh, inherent guilt. It's closely uh, connected to the doctrine of total depravity or original sin, which is why David uses this word in verse 5 when he notes that he was brought forth in iniquity. Uh, That is, he was sinful from birth. Uh, The third word that he uses for his sin is sin itself. The word sin just means to miss the mark. When you sin, it's like shooting an arrow and just missing the bullseye. James Boyce notes that, quote, but it is also true that sin misses its own mark since we never hit what we are aiming at by sinning, end quote. And that's very important for all of us to understand. Understand this, that sin will always go further than you think it's going to take you. Imagine uh, you're, you're at SeaTac, you, you get off the plane, you, you go out to, uh, to pick up and you call an Uber to take you back up to Linwood, but the driver just keeps going right past Linwood and ends up uh, on I-5 North and doesn't stop until you get to Vancouver, British Columbia, at which point you get kicked out of the car, you're on your own, trying to figure out how you're going to get back to Linwood. And that's exactly what sin will do to you. It will always, always, always take you much further than you think it's going to go. Especially, friends, especially sexual sin. When it comes to sin though, the answer, the way back home to God is through repentance. And your repentance can't be based on anything about you. It must be made on the basis of who God is and what God is. He is steadfast in love. He is abounding in mercy and grace. And with those attributes or those qualities in mind, you can just be real with Him about your sin. The last thing you should do, the last thing you should do before God is try to minimize your sin or to justify your sin. Don't you dare try to justify your sin with God. Don't try to come up with excuses. Just be Open about it and take responsibility for it. Admit your guilt. See your sin for what it is. And hate it. Now here's the question that we're so often stuck with when it comes to hating our sin. What if we don't hate it? Then what do you do? What do you do when there's a sin that you have that you love? that you enjoy. You know it's wrong, but oh man, you get so much pleasure out of it. You enjoy it so much for whatever reason, whatever it may be. Then what do you do? You ask God to help you to hate it. You ask God to help you to see it from His perspective. And you trust that His perspective is right. And so you turn from it. Hate it because it displeases the One whom you care most about pleasing but notice that David not only has three words for a sin but he appeals to three things about God God's graciousness God's loving kindness and God's great compassion and you must learn to come to God the same way and for the same purpose that David came to God and you must be honest and forthright as David is as he proceeds let's continue with verses three to six Where David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom you notice that David didn't try to make excuses for his sin. He says, I know my sin. God, you know my sin. I know my sin. He's not trying to justify it. He's not trying to excuse it. He's not trying to minimize it. He's just being brutally honest and and forthright about it. And so he starts his confession by saying that he is aware of his sin. He knows his sin, but what we mean is that we know uh, what what he's saying is that he knows more than just on an intellectual level now you and i are the same way we we might know our sin we might be aware of our sin on an intellectual level that we you know where we know that what we've done was wrong we know that what we've done was sinful david had that too he had an intellectual understanding of his sin but this confession flows from what he calls in verse 17, a broken and contrite heart. So he's not feeling casual about his sin. He is grieving over his sin as he ought, as we ought. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, quote, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. David's sin was for him at this point bitter. What do you do when when something's bitter? Well, if, you, if you've taken a bite of it already and it's not supposed to be bitter, you, you spit it out and you chase it with a teaspoon of uh, honey or something sweet to get the taste out of your mouth. And you remember that every year when it's cold season and you end up taking Robitussin, how terrible it is to choke down something that is absolutely bitter like Robitussin is. So. You must the point is you must see your sin as bitter. If if you think that your sin is sweet, what is that gonna say about how you view Christ? If you think that sin is sweet, you're conversely going to find that Christ is bitter. You must see your sin as bitter. Then you will find that Christ is sweet. You've got to treat your sin the same way that you would treat a mouthful of Of bitter food if you spit out a mouthful of bitter food you you don't lap it up again you throw it away you get it away from you you don't go back for seconds you're just done with it and that's how David is approaching his sin David also saw that his sin was a personal offense a personal affront to God all sin is ultimately against God because God is the one who defines sin Now you might say that he sinned against Uriah, you might say that he sinned against Bathsheba, but here's the thing, neither Uriah nor Bathsheba were the ones to define what sin is. If God hadn't defined what sin was, uh, you couldn't say that this was sin against them. It might have been uh, breaking the law, but it wouldn't have been a sin against them if God hadn't established those boundaries. And you too must see that you have sinned against God personally every time you sin. So it was a a deeply personal offense. David acknowledges that what he did was not only wrong in God's sight, that it was not only sinful in God's sight, but that it was evil in God's sight. Now that's a word that we don't use as lightly as sin or immoral. Uh, you know, we'll say that Adolf Hitler was evil, and yeah, no, no, uh, no argument there. Uh, we'll say that Joseph Stalin was evil. Again, no, no argument there. Planned Parenthood, absolutely they are evil. But what about my greed? What we'll say is, oh, you know, it's my weakness, but, you know, it, it's there. I'm dealing with it. It's, it's a weakness. My addiction... Oh, I'm a victim. My temper, it's a problem. My selfish ego, it's an obstacle at times. No, friends, that is not how God sees your sin. And it can't be how you see your sin either. It is evil. Don't minimize it. Don't justify it. Don't make excuses. You have to be able to say what David says here. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight do you hear the grief in David's confession do you hear the grief that he's wrestling with he's filled with this anguish over what he's done are you when you sin and if not why not is it because you don't see how evil your sin is Or is it that you foolishly neither fear displeasing God, nor do you fear receiving His discipline?" See, this grief, this, this sorrow is a good thing. This grief is a godly thing because it's a necessary element of true repentance. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says that sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The difference is, why are you repenting? Are you repenting because you've displeased the world? Are you repenting because you're afraid of consequences? Or are you repenting because you absolutely hate the fact that you have sinned against God? This is a grief that confesses that God would be perfectly just to speak judgment against you. That if He were to condemn you right now, He would be perfectly just in doing so. God has every right to cast David out. He has every right to pour out His holy and righteous wrath on David. And David acknowledges that here. David realizes that it's not just that his sin is evil, but that he himself by nature is evil. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now he's not saying that his mother was in sin by conceiving him, or because she conceived him. He's certainly not blaming her for the fact that he is sinful, or for this specific sin. What David is confessing is that he is not only evil, but that he has been a sinner since the moment of his conception in his mother's womb. And the same is true of you and me. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. We are fallen from the moment we were conceived by nature. We sin both by nature and by choice. So David isn't saying that he was momentarily a sinner. He's confessing the fact that he's never not been a sinner. And yet, in verse 6, he acknowledges that God desires for his people to be inwardly pure. See, God requires not only that we be outwardly pure, but that we be inwardly pure. And this is where the, the Pharisees missed the boat, right? The Pharisees in Jesus' time, they were outwardly pure, but inwardly they were impure. They were like whitewashed tombs, nice and shiny, clean graves on the outside, filled with death. And decay on the inside. So David recognizes the incredible greatness of his need. He not only needs to be cleansed from his sin, but he needs a pure heart. He needs a new nature that has the wisdom to walk according to God's precepts, to obey God. Now we're going to get to that second part, but first, he needs to be cleansed of his sin. He needs to be pardoned. And that's what he asks for in verses 7-9. to Where he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. So David asks for three things here. First, he asks to be purified with hyssop. Second, similarly, he asks that God would wash him. The Hebrew word that gets translated purified is a really interesting word. If you translated it literally, it would be translated unsin me or desin me. Sin had left a crimson stain and there was nothing that David could do to remove it. He needed God to do what only God was capable of doing because there was nothing within His power to remove it. It's the same idea that Isaiah had in mind when he recorded God calling out to His people saying, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's how clean David wanted to be he realized that sin sin had left a stain and he wanted to be white as wool. Do you desire to be that clean before God? Have you, like David, come to the point where you realize that your sin has left a stain and where you want that kind of cleansing? I, I think that we all too often come to God like God is just a car wash. You know, we we want all the dirt kind of washed and and rinsed and rubbed away, but we know that we're just going to go right back out and get dirty again. So we come kind of casually. We don't go to God with that kind of cleansing in mind. We don't go to God with that kind of cleansing in mind because that's an insult to God. I'm just going to go back out and do it again. I'm going to go back out and defile myself, but can you cleanse me now? Go to him instead, with the understanding that God is not like a car wash, and we aren't going to go back out and get dirty again. That kind of person, I have to tell you, has absolutely no assurance of salvation. Now you might say, "Well, wait a minute," John says, First John chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so can't i just sin and then confess and be cleansed and my answer is yes but keep on reading in john if you go to first john chapter 3 verse 9 you'll see that john says this he says no one who is born of god practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of god Let me read that again. No one who is born of God practices sin. To practice sin means that you keep on going back to it. It becomes a habit. It becomes a pattern. It's where you're treating God just like a car wash. So let me say it again. If you are that kind of person, if you're the kind of person who treats God this way, who, who sins and comes and confesses to God, and then you go back out and you you sin again, maybe you're a Christian just going through a a, a real rough spot, or, or maybe you're not. Either way, here's what you need to know. If you're treating God like a car wash, you have no assurance of salvation by practicing, by having this habit of returning to your sin over and over and over and over again. David certainly had no plans of returning to his sin if God in his mercy would cleanse him of it, and neither should we. So how do we regain that assurance? Say, say you've, you've had this pattern of sinning. You've had this habit of sinning. And as you're listening to this, you're being struck with conviction. You're like, "I need, I need to break free of this of this habit. I, I, I want to have the assurance of salvation. How do I get the assurance of salvation again? And the answer is you repent and you stop practicing sin. You just stop going back to it. Get help. Ask a brother or sister to help you. You stop going back to that sin over and over. You wage war against it actively not passively you have to become active in waging war against that sin that's how you regain assurance of salvation the third thing that David asks is that God would blot out all of his iniquities what this refers to is removing the writing from the pages of a book see apart from God's cleansing apart from God's Forgiveness, apart from His restoring grace, the books of our lives, both yours and mine and David's, are filled with one sin after another after another. They speak one indictment after another against us. Each one carrying the penalty of God's wrath being poured out against us for all of eternity in hell. And if God does not act to remove all that is written on these pages... By canceling our sin debt, they will be read against us on the day that we stand before Him in judgment, and we will be cast into the outer darkness forever. But the good news, friends, the good news is that God can do something about this book that's filled with indictments against us. He can blot out every transgression, He can blot out every sin every iniquity of which we're guilty by ripping those pages out of the book, taking them out of our hands and putting them in Christ's hands, while simultaneously taking the pages of Christ's book, which are spotless, and putting them in our hands as if we had been the ones to live His perfect, sinless life, and as if He had lived our sinful life. Rebellious lives. This is the one and only way that God has ever forgiven anyone. You must stand before Him with blank sheets in your book. With no indictments in your book. You must stand before Him in His own perfect righteousness. And Christ took the sins of His people upon Himself so that we could and would. But remember, David needed more than just forgiveness. Yes, he needed forgiveness, but he also knew that he was sinful and evil by virtue of his fallen nature. What he needed was a new nature, what he needed was a new heart. So he comes back to that now in verses 10 to 12, praying this. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will treat, teach transgressors. Well, we'll go to that next. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. We'll stop there. If God simply forgives David, but leaves David exactly as he is, what do you think is going to happen? David knows that he will just go back to his sin over and over again. So what he needs is an inner change in addition to an inner cleansing. He needs a clean heart, a new clean heart to replace his sinful, corrupt, evil heart. And he needs the renewal of a steadfast, upright spirit Within him. The word for create here is bara, which is the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. So this word is used to describe God's act of creating, it's describing something that only God is capable of doing. What David is asking for, in other words, is nothing short of a miracle. He knew that if God requires a pure heart, and and He does, then God must be the one to give it to him. As we've seen so many times before in our studies of the Scriptures, only God can provide what God requires. If we are ever going to make progress, if we are ever going to experience victory over sin, God needs to create A new heart within us. And that's actually what's promised in the new covenant. Listen to what God told Ezekiel of the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, he said, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. And that is exactly what David was just asking for. Even with a new heart, David knew that he could potentially fall into sin again. That's why he prays for a, a steadfast or uh, upright, either way, spirit. He asks that God not cast him away and not remove the Holy Spirit from him. Uh, that, that says the same thing positively in verse 12 that he said negatively in verse 11. He asks God to restore, him, uh, restore in him the joy of salvation and to sustain him with a willing spirit. What David is acknowledging here is the same thing that you and I must acknowledge when we come to God to confess our sin. And that is that without both God's grace and His Spirit continually working within us, we could not make any progress toward holiness. We need God's grace. We need God's aid, His help constantly and continually there is not a second of your life in which you don't need God's sustaining grace so many people today think that joy is found by turning away from God and by just sinning freely nothing could be further from the truth David realizes that true joy is found in God's salvation and we must realize that too I know how tempting sin is I'm a human being. I know the lies that sin tells us. How it tells us that it will bring us so much joy, so much pleasure, so much happiness. But it's a lie. It brings us discontentedness. It brings us misery. It brings us shame and contempt. Because sin gets in the way of our fellowship with God. And thus it deprives us of the source of true joy if you do not actively go to war against your sin, friend, it will deplete every good and enjoyable thing from your life. It will deplete your joy. It will deplete your love. It will deplete your contentment. And it will steal your assurance. But take heart, because God's Spirit dwelling within you enables you to keep getting up To go to battle with your sin, even when it has knocked you down, and even when it has knocked you down again and again. Now, maybe you haven't noticed, but David has asked for so many things so far in this psalm, which is why we are really running short on time here. But let me just say this, the the fact that he prays for so many things here, what does that even tell us? The fact that he prays for so many things actually reveals how many things we lose when we sin. But, God is faithful to restore these things to us when we confess our sin, just as he was faithful to restore these things to David. By God's grace, David would set a new course for his life. With a new beginning, he's going to go in a new direction, which, by the way, is exactly what repentance means. It means you're turning away from your sin, and you are turning toward Christ. And that's what David is going to do. He's going to live his life for God. Let's look at verses 13-15. to 15. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare Your praise. David vows to do all these things as a result of God forgiving him and restoring him. But what we need to see is that he's not going to just go back to living his life the way that he was living it before. He vows to go in a new direction. He vows to serve God uh, by God's grace as a result of being cleansed from his sin. And so he vows that he will live his life more fully for the glory of God, telling sinners about God's goodness with his own life, his own experience, being proof of God's willingness to forgive, to restore, and to renew fallen sinners. According to J.I. Packer, true repentance always has, quote, at its heart, a serious purpose of sinning no more, but of living henceforth a life that will show one's repentance to be full and real, end quote. And so David's cleansing, David's renewal will result in him teaching others about the Lord, teaching others about God's grace. He'll be singing joyfully of His righteousness, declaring His praise. See, when our sin is bitter and Christ and His abundant mercy is so sweet, we can't stay silent about it. We teach. We sing. We declare the mercy we've received. And we sing of and for our merciful God. See, we aren't saved by these things. These aren't the the reason that David will be cleansed. He is saved for these things, just like we are. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. By God's grace, He helps us and He uses us after He has cleansed us and renewed us and restored us. David closes this psalm by acknowledging that God's grace is David's only hope, just as it is our only hope. Let's look at verses 16-19. to He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. David knows that he has no sacrifice that he can bring before God to atone for his sin. In the classic hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, we sing similarly, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So what can we bring? Well, we bring our sin to God but we bring it with a contrite heart. A heart that is broken over the fact that we have dishonored God. A heart that is grieving over the fact that we have displeased God. Now the sacrifices of bulls and goats were never meant to atone for sin. Indeed, the author of Hebrews reminds us they never atoned for sin. Instead, what they did is they pointed to the one sacrifice in all of history that counts, and that is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ without faith in Christ. There is no cleansing with God. There is no forgiveness from God. There is no grace from God. That is only found through the one sacrifice that meant anything. And that is through Christ's sacrifice. For those who come to Jesus in contrition and confession, He is a wonderful and gracious Savior. The doors are open. Will you ask Him to create a new heart within you? Will you plead with Him to change your life? Will you experience and will you tell of the salvation that He and only He can and will provide? If you struggle with a particular sin, friends, perhaps especially sexual sin, given the context of this psalm, but if you struggle with any sin let me encourage you to not only go back and maybe listen to this sermon a a few times but to also memorize and learn to pray this particular psalm psalm 51 let me encourage you also to pray without ceasing for victory over your sin pray that by god's grace you would be humble contrite teachable and sensitive to the leading and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that He would produce in you a deeper and deeper hatred for sin. A desire and the power to mortify it and then some so that He would instill and build within all of us a deeper love for the Lord of mercy and grace who redeemed us and who cleansed us with His own blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one and only way out of the guilt of sin and back to fellowship with God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, all we can say is that we need a psalm like this to not only teach us about the terrible nature of our sin, and how deeply it offends you, but also to show us how to be restored into fellowship with you. Were it not for your grace, were it not for your loving kindness, your never-failing covenantal love for your people, were it not for the greatness of your compassion, surely we would have no hope. We would be completely lost but You sent Christ to live a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, and to die the death that we deserve to die, to bear the weight of our sin upon Himself in order that we may stand in His perfect robes of righteousness. We pray, O Lord, that by Your Spirit living within us, we would be convicted to not only turn from sin, but to flee from sin and not to return to it. Teach us, O oh Lord, to delight in Your mercy, to delight in Your ways, to come, with, to come to You and to be honest with our sin with You in order that You may cleanse us and teach us how awful our sin is in order that we would learn to hate it. O oh Lord, please teach us to hate our sin. Please teach us to delight in Your ways for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.